you're an idiot. Or at least that's where a lot of our political discourse seems to end up these days. So how do we manage that in the body of Christ and not end up in a place where we're saying those sorts of things about each other? That's what we're going to look at a little bit today, get into it on the All Things to All People podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast with Michael Burns. I am Michael Burns, and we're continuing to go through Escaping the Beast and talk about our role as kingdom people when it comes to politics and justice. How do we have differing views, different perspectives, and not get to a place where we are calling each other names challenging one another's Christianity, those sorts of things. Is there anything in the New Testament that would help direct us or help us to just think about that in in big picture or small picture terms? And uh, there, there is, of course, but there's also something else and uh, that I think might be enlightening for us. And I want to begin by reading today a, a section from chapter 12, the opening section to the book, to frame this conversation. And it says, Unquestionably, one of the most stunning developments in the world of biblical archaeology in 2019 was the discovery of ancient manuscripts that date back to the first century. After much analysis, experts in the field have agreed that these documents are an authentic written dialogue between the apostles Peter and Paul. This is perhaps the most important and enlightening historical discovery in the last 2,000 years. If you haven't been following the developing story of the partial fragments that have been unearthed, allow me to fill you in because it is incredible. The dialogue appears to have been written in the mid-50s AD between two of the most important figures in Christianity. Now, you may have missed this because of all the other news going on lately, but let me read an excerpt from the first letter written from Paul to Peter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, and Timothy, our brother, to Peter, our dear friend and fellow worker in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I've urged you many times in the Lord, I plead with you to consider supporting our impressive Emperor Nero and his rule over the nations. I must admit, he's not perfect, but he supports many plans that align with our faith in Jesus Christ. He's been wonderful for the economy, and many brothers and sisters are prospering like they never have before. His decree to allow our Jewish brothers and sisters back into Rome after Claudius, servant of the great dragon, banned them, has been a blessing. His reforms have allowed important leaders like Prisca and Aquila to resume their work for the gospel. There can be little question that God has raised up a man like Nero for such a time as this. After all, if God used Cyrus the Persian for his purposes, why could he not use our emperor? Not much else survives of this first letter, but this bit offers important insight into Paul's views on politics in the first century. The reply from Peter 
is just as enlightening. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to our dear brother Paul, grace and peace be yours in abundance. I am shocked to see you so quickly accept the propaganda of a fool like Nero. His economic reforms are shallow, and while he has pandered to the Jews in Rome, you seem to forget the constant corruption that has become synonymous with his rule and the nonstop lies that flow whenever his lips move. Those of us who were overjoyed to see the good that Claudius accomplished were grieved to hear of his leadership being brought to such a tragic end. Surely, brother, you were not swayed by the fake news and constant lies about Claudius. He was protected by God during Caligula's murderous rampage and chosen by God to be the leader of our great empire. Please tell me how you could call yourself a servant of King Jesus and support. Unfortunately, that's all that survives of this second letter. But it provides a fascinating window into Peter's worldview. Paul's response is sharp and to the point. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ with Timothy to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Peter, my brother, has your mind been so easily deceived by the accuser? Have your eyes been blinded to the work of the one who masquerades as an angel of light? Have you really called an honorable man like Nero a liar? Is that what Jesus would do? Claudius sat on a throne of lies and nearly crippled the economy of the great empire. Have you paid no attention to all that Nero has done for women's rights? Under his leadership, the avenues for women have increased greatly and his building projects have driven unemployment to an all-time low. My good brother, surely you must admit that Claudius was a bigot, and if you yoke yourself together with him, then you stand before God as a bigot yourself. The Lord knows that you have displayed these tendencies before in Antioch. May he have mercy on your soul. How long must I? Once again, the surviving fragments break off at this point. The part of Peter's final response that survives will not soon be forgotten. Simon Peter, the servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, the one who testifies to having seen and touched our glorious Lord and Savior for those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ and have received a faith as precious as ours. I can only assume that all the beatings you have endured have left you bereft of your full faculties. How could you besmirch the memory of such a good man? Claudius rebuilt the military after it was nearly wiped out by Caligula's excesses and secured the borders of this great empire against the advances of the barbarians and others who want to destroy the sovereignty of Rome and who are jealous of her blessings from God. May God continue to bless this nation and keep her safe as a force for good in the world. If you are going to continue to take such anti-God positions... I may have to, frustratingly, that's all that remains. There's one more brief fragment from Paul, which I copy here, although the beginning of the letter remains lost to history. We simply do not know if Peter wrote anything more. Perhaps further discoveries will uncover more correspondence from these two great giants in the faith. So we pick up where the fragments Uh, start. About me? How dare you? 
Claudius used our troops like his own personal servants. He risked their lives needlessly. Nero has used the military wisely and has had to spend much of his time fixing the foreign relations fiascos created by that idiot Claudius. He supports the rights of citizens to bear, and that's where it breaks off. The writing goes on in the chapter and says, hopefully... You either looked at the endnotes for the letters above or figured out quickly on your own that these are not real letters. I wrote every word of them. Don't they seem absurd? Can you imagine Paul or Peter writing such things? Can you fathom a scenario in which these two apostles would become embroiled in a political debate or argument like this? You probably find the thought of such a thing as silly, as silly as I do. But can you imagine two Christians having a back and forth like that in the 21st century? Not only can I imagine it, I've seen countless arguments between followers of Jesus just like this, and much worse. Occasionally it's been in person, but more often it's on social media of some kind or in some forum. Public political arguments have become one of the biggest causes of division among Christians today, as we quickly seem to forget Paul's warning to be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. Forgetting that social media is among the largest windows to the outside world. So, if reading that seems absurd for Paul and Peter... Why would it not be absurd for us? Are we somehow more capable of engaging in the real problems of the world than, than Paul and Peter? Oh, they were just, they were apostles. Their mind was focused on other things and they didn't have time for that stuff, but we do because we're going to make a bigger impact in the world because how else would you? And we start to make all these excuses that don't make sense. Or we appeal to what Paul wrote in Romans 13 in relation to the government. We take that out of context. We've we've talked about that in previous episodes, uh, Romans 12 and 13, and we'll come back to those passages, again, where Paul uh, basically tells the Christian community, hey, chapter 12, be the kingdom people. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, here's what it's going to look like to relate to the nations wherever you find yourself, to empire. Um, You're not going to try to overthrow them or wipe them out. You're going to be kingdom people, and this is their role, and this is how you're going to let them have their role, but that's not your role. And then he reminds them in verse 8, you have no debt remaining except to love others. So why do we then start to hold ourselves to a different sort of standard Uh, as though we should be less focused on the kingdom than our, are they, or than they were. So uh, that's where that uh, leaves us. And I want to build on that thought a little bit, because when when we're not focused incorrectly, we can quickly start to 
have these passions and these allegiances and these views that we then think, well, this is this is right. This is an expression of my Christian faith. And it ends with hard feelings, with, you know, between Christians, with you're an idiot, with, you know, you're dangerous, your thoughts and your this and that. And, and it gets to the point where even when someone is standing up trying to declare, no, this is a kingdom perspective, those people start to get shouted down by those with particular political allegiances and labeled by values of the world. Oh, you're a progressive liberal, you're a conservative nut job, or whatever these these epithets that are thrown back and forth. But even the kingdom-focused person can't speak up boldly for the kingdom uh, because of these uh, allegiances. A key passage here that I do want to highlight is, uh, it's a simple one. It's Matthew 10, uh, verses 1 through 4, and it's one we can easily skip over. Um, Actually, starting in, I think it's verse 2 here, it says, These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, basically, everybody listed there is given a name and maybe another helpful identifier with who their father was, which is, is really just helping identify them with their name or distinguish them, except for two. We have Matthew the tax collector, and Simon the zealot. That tells us uh, a lot about who these two guys were, what they believed. And we're not going to go into it in super great detail or depth here today, but simply to say, if you were a tax collector uh, in these times, a Jewish tax collector, you were at one level or another supportive of Rome. You were working with Rome. You were down with Rome you were not very well thought of by most of the Jewish people. You had kind of thrown in your political lot and economic fortune with Rome. If you're a zealot, you're the exact opposite. You see pagan Rome as uh, being an occupying force, being the problem in Judaism, the obstacle to uh, ending the long exile of God and his people, Uh, of not taking their place in their role in the world as the light of the world and and actually being an an obstacle to the coming of the age to come, that the Romans had to go in order for the Messiah to come and be who he was going to be and who Israel was supposed to be. And that was one of the roles of the Messiah, in fact, was to take down the, the pagan overlords. So these are two very decided political ends of the spectrum in the first century. And you have these two guys following Jesus. How on earth does that work? 
you stop and think of the scene in Matthew 22 where Jesus is uh, in the temple and they're trying to trap him, some of the Jewish leaders, and they say, hey, should we pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Well, what a loaded political question in the first century. Hard to get a more loaded question than that. How's he going to answer that? If he says, yes, pay the tax, well, now he's taken the the side of Rome and power and empire, and Simon is done with this fraud. But if he says no, well, now that's offensive to Matthew and those in power. And, of course, his answer, and again, I won't go into detail here, but it's really quite profound, revolutionary, and um, subversive in a lot of ways. His answer has to do with the Jewish tradition of being made in the image of God, going back to Genesis 1, which is you represent the will and the totality and the authority and the presence of the God. That's what an image does. That's what an idol, a statue, an image did. And so there's sort of this subtle dig at empire and Caesar. Hey, if Caesar wants to sum up who he is and be represented in totality and and be, you know, shown in the world, this is what uh, Caesar's about and this is what he amounts to. If that's all capsu- encapsulated in this coin, then go ahead. He can have it back. But whose image is imprinted on you? Well, human beings were made in the image of God. We are to represent God, his presence, his authority. God wants you for his kingdom. Now, Jesus is not saying political matters mean nothing. We don't care about injustice. We don't care about the good of our neighbors. We don't care about those things. What he is saying is that the left and right, the zealots and the tax collectors, they don't have the answers to these issues. The kingdom of God has the solution. And God wants you to get on board and fight for his kingdom, but fighting with the weapons of the world. And we've been talking about that and will continue to. And so we talked about this passage on this podcast, but I just wanted to give that brief summary because the only way that Matthew and Simon can follow Jesus. It's not, hey, let's follow him and we'll just not talk about this stuff. The the only way forward, and, and I think the, the very obvious reason why the gospel writers included these markers of their past is to show this is what these men gave up to follow Jesus. This is how uh, diverge, divergent Jesus followers are. He's pulling people from all sides, but they are giving up these allegiances in order to follow Jesus. That that has to be what is going on here. And I, I recently uh, wrote an article. Uh, you can find it if you if you haven't seen it and are interested. It's uh, it is called "Give to God What Is God's." You can find it on disciplestoday.org, and it was written in response to the recent uh, happenings at the Capitol 
building in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, the very uh, profound and disturbing incidents in January 6th. And I was sort of going into this idea of, you know, I'm talking about uh, Matthew and uh, Simon and and all that is is going on with that issue. And I want to I want to take just a second to read what I wrote here. And it gets at this idea of where our allegiance lies. Again, uh, we're not advocating here for withdrawing from the issues of the world and not taking meaningful action in the world, but it's how we go about it. Who do we represent? And one of the things I point out in the article is this pressure from the world to pick a side. And that's what's going on with Jesus in Matthew 22 in the temple. There's only two options here. Pick a side. You're pro-empire or you're pro-revolution. Come on. Are you left? Are you right? Pick a side. And so we feel that pressure. Let me read what I wrote here. It said, but I'm, and I'm picking up towards the end of the article. But I must admit, there is something here that confuses me greatly. Why are so many followers of Jesus today more willing to defend the ways of the world than critique them? A critique of the world doesn't mean we don't love people or that we just want to be judgmental or that we don't care. It means we have a conviction that the kingdom of God is what the world needs. There cannot be a divided loyalty. Either God's radical kingdom is the way people are supposed to live or it is not. Either we model that in everything we do or we look just like any of the options already available to the world. Let me break in here quickly and say, don't read into that all people just need the kingdom, meaning all people need is a religious conversion and to go to church. That is a monumentally and damagingly small conception of the kingdom. If you haven't heard some of the previous episodes on the kingdom, I would urge you to go back and listen to those and then continue as we move forward. And we'll talk about what the kingdom looks like in action. Continue reading here. Why do we not jump at opportunities to point out places where the systems of the world have failed? Why do we often seem more interested in defending our nation, our favored political party, or our preferred cause, than we are in lovingly critiquing where they fall short of bearing God's image and seek to show the world the kingdom? Why do we not leap at opportunities to show the failings or hypocrisies of both sides, who or, I'm sorry, what or who really is our Lord? And I'll break in here again and say, there's no lack of evidence to show hypocrisy and failing on either side of the political spectrum. And I'm always shocked I'll see a disciple go on and say, here's where this political party and its politicians look at all their failings and their hypocrisies and and this and that. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. That's half the story. Let's turn around and do the same thing for the side that you're kind of tacitly advocating for. That's where Christians should be as, as kingdom people 
is ready. We, we might have our tendencies. We might have, yeah, I see it a little more this way. But we've got to be honest and point these things out with equal voice. So that we're pointing people to the kingdom. Because I see so many Christians that have stopped doing that. And I can go on their social media or whatever and and, and see the light they're shining on a political uh, party or politician but not so much on the kingdom because their solutions, their ideas look just like that party that they have fallen in love with. And they're not really showing the kingdom very well anymore, at least, especially not to people who take a different political view than the one they're espousing. See, that's the problem when we give our allegiance somewhere else than the kingdom of God, when we reflect and represent something else. And this is Jesus' point. Give to God what is God's? Represent him, and that's it. Back to the article. What we do not see in Matthew 22 is Matthew arguing about the zealots' foolishness and hypocrisy. He doesn't compare them with violent revolutions of the past while excusing Rome from such analysis. Nor do we see Simon denounce the power of empires obviously opposed to God, but screaming about the zealots' righteousness. If they'd pointed out critiques of one side or the other, they would have been justified. That can be very legitimate role of the kingdom of God, but errors on one side does not automatically mean the other side is right. So we can then turn a blind eye and support that position. That seems to be the mistake so many of our brothers and sisters are making at the moment. When we take sides and begin to reflect something other than kingdom solutions, we make it virtually impossible to show the reality of Jesus and his kingdom to those on the side we do not pick. Our concern must be to spread the message of the kingdom into as many hearts as possible rather than advance a political agenda. Have we forgotten that the gospel needs to be shared with all? Have we categorized some as an enemy and lost concern for them in the name of a political party. And the article goes on from there. So where did this get lost? We could go a long ways into history, this idea of just representing the kingdom. But, and that's somewhat outside of the scope to go all into that in detail. But I do want to give a sketch here, and again, this comes from chapter 12. That So around AD 250, you have a, an, another in a line of persecutions break out in the Roman Empire. This one's known as the Decian Persecution. Uh, that dies down, and then for about 40 years, things are pretty calm, in for Christians at least, in the Roman Empire. And during that time, many grew comfortable. They began to lose their distinctiveness as Christians in many ways, and some even accepted positions in the government or the great empire far more than had been accepted in previous generations, which was it was very frowned upon in the previous generations and, and discouraged uh, to, uh, to a very high degree. So in, in AD 303, Emperor Diocletian began maybe one of the most extensive and intense and violent persecutions for Christians to that date. And it, in many respects, caught the church by surprise. The violence raged on for eight years. The emperor tried to wipe Christians off the face of the earth. Many recanted their faith to save their lives during this, but many didn't, and they suffered greatly, and, and many died. 
You could say the dragon had roared one more time, but it became clear that he could not use the beast to snuff out the church. So Diocletian eventually gave up and ended the oppression in AD 311. Two years later, the unimaginable happens. An unbelievable blessing occurs. Constantine and his co-ruler make Christianity a legal religion in Rome. He claims that he had a vision and all of this, and so he became very um, amenable towards Christians. And overnight, the threat of persecution disappears. Over the next few years, state money from Rome flowed to restored seized land, give back to Christians everything that had been taken. Uh, Constantine kind of converts to Christianity, although he wouldn't be baptized until many years later on his deathbed. But its influence grew from that point on, and it must have seemed like an incredible blessing, but was it? Now, in AD 244, and I write about this in this chapter, there was an emperor named Philip the Arab who wanted to attend a Christian celebration of Easter with his wife, who had become a Christian, but the leaders of the church wouldn't allow him to partake in all the aspects of the gathering unless he truly repented and walked away from his position of power, submitting himself in allegiance to Jesus. He was going to, if he didn't do that, he had to stand with the visitors and leave the church when it was time to take communion. Unfortunately, that same level of commitment to the kingdom standard of separateness just was not observed with Constantine. The church accepted the authority and support of the empire that Constantine brought, and it blurred the separation between the church, between the kingdom and state. Before long, Constantine was even inserting himself into church decisions and authority. Now, that's often overblown and People claim that Constantine changed things that he didn't and created the canon of the New Testament and changed all these things. He didn't, but he did insert himself into, into many things. So he's often demonized for that unfairly. Um, but it, it did put in play a series of decisions that would lead the church down a path of compromise that would change the nature of the church faster than anyone could have imagined. So within a few decades, the church is now intertwining itself with the state. They went from centuries of opposing military participation for Christians, violence for any reason, or allowing the Roman army to call itself to, I'm sorry, they went from all that to allowing the Roman army to call itself Christian. And they started persecuting heretics for holding different beliefs. So the, the distinction then between the kingdom of God and the Roman Empire here gets blurred to the point that Rome became a nation under God in the mind of the church. Many Romans joined the church, but they no longer were held to the standard of strict allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom view of the world. It was instead right doctrine, church membership, and obedience to the authority of the church leaders. Those were now the expectations. So Constantine eventually exempts the church leaders from paying taxes and for uh, he even institutes formally paying church leaders a, a salary. They're given the authority to decide many of the civil cases 
rather than people going before judges. Now, he did hold to the idea that you couldn't force people to be members, but that changes by AD 380. Um, well, by AD 380, sorry, the emperor declares Christianity as the official religion of Rome, outlaws all other religions, begins to destroy pagan temples, persecute those who don't convert to Christianity, and and then eventually it's it's brought in that, hey, maybe it's okay to force people into church membership. All these actions were odd with the, at odds with the previous historic teaching of the church. A theologian um, named Ambrose at the time rose to prominence in the latter half of the 4th century. He came from the schools of natural law and human logic, and he begins to argue that Rome was a Christian nation, and to defend the Roman Empire was to defend Christianity. He introduced the philosophy that if someone was in danger, it was immoral not to use violence to defend them if necessary, which was in stark contrast to the teaching of the first three centuries. Shortly after that, after Ambrose, Augustine became the most influential leader in the Christian world. And he teaches that individuals could not control their sin, and it was up to the state to curb violence and keep order. War, he believed, was an inevitable tool that was a moral positive in the hands of a godly state. So in his theology, it was now the state that would restore order in the world rather than the kingdom of peace. And Augustine justified the use of violence by pointing to the violence of the Old Testament though he didn't advocate continuing other elements of the Old Covenant period, such as animal sacrifice, which seems to be a little inconsistent. But he convinced the church to turn its back on the long-standing prohibition of violence and self-defense, and he eventually came to advocate for coerced conversions. To justify this turn in philosophy towards embracing empire and advocating for violence and war, Ambrose and Augustine developed guidelines for just war. These principles are still largely accepted and followed to this day in much of Christendom, with only a few minor tweaks over the centuries. Now, there, 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 there have always been small groups that have held to the gospel of King Jesus and his kingdom of peace, operating as an alternative society. But since the revolution of Constantine, Ambrose, and Augustine, the face of Christianity the world has been very different than it was for the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection. And most of those small kingdom movements were harshly persecuted by the dominant strains of Christendom. So we begin to see this radical change. The zealot and the tax collector. That's the choice before us. Who are we going to reflect and represent? Is it going to be the kingdoms of the world, the empires of the world, or is it going to be the kingdom of God? I want to end there for today, but I have a special treat before we end this episode. I got a very... Uh, cool, um, I don't know what you call it. I'll, I'll call it a gift from a uh, a couple of listeners of the podcast. 
and they are members of a group called the Songbirds, which is a the Songbirds are a, a multi generational, multiracial band of brothers in the Syracuse Regional Church of Christ, uh, including uh, the members are Aaron Tussing, David Tabing, I hope I'm saying that correctly, Christian Landaberry, and Tim Jones. And uh, they did this great song called Celebrate Diversity, which they said was inspired by uh, this podcast. And so I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for them listening and for sharing this song. And so we're going to close out today's episode with a little bit of this song. And I will put the lyrics to this song in the show notes. Enjoy. Join us next time. If you have any feedback or questions, Hit me up at all things to all people podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Into